Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome back to A Conversation With, and I'm excited to welcome back Yost White Toast uh, Van Drunen, our first ever repeat guest. So thank you for taking the time coming back. Thanks. We've been we've been setting up some audio tests and how to sort of manage um, not talking too loudly. So if we do come across too loudly, blame technology, not us. Um, there you go. Yost is the author of One Up, which is still one of the best games uh, or one of the best books on gaming that exists. Thanks. Um, and one of the best analysis because you don't really have that version um, widely done by a lot of authors and also the author of Super Juice Playlist, which is a weekly uh, Substack newsletter, which it's incredible. And if you're a big fan of nonfiction essay writing like I am, then it's your thing. It's worthwhile. Go check it Thanks, out. Man. Thanks so much. Of course. Um, so now, since we last talked, it's been about a year. And so a lot has happened, to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was reading through the book again, and I was trying to be like, can I adapt some of the questions in terms of predictions, et cetera? But thought I'd just keep everything more current instead of always looking back. So firstly, uh, what was your favorite video game of the past year that you ended up playing and why? Oh. That, that would have to be Halo. I um, I started the p- pandemic with uh, Doom Eternal. Um, mm-hmm. because That's I what just, you were playing last you know, time. Right, and so and that one was really just a kind of, I mean, maybe it's full circle, now that I think about it, but so Doom Eternal at the beginning of the pandemic was sort of like getting, blowing off steam and getting the frustration out, just shooting things into smaller pieces. It was very satisfying. Halo Infinite, on the other hand, was much more aspirational. And sort of like this, it's a, you know, it's a shooter game, but it's very calm and like sort of hilarious with the grunts running around. That one I liked, and it was just a real mellow vibe, which mm-hmm. it was great to come out of the pandemic. It's sort of like, oh, I have to be hopeful about something. And it, it seemed to uh, to do exactly that for me. Absolutely. Um, it was, that's actually one of, been one of my favorite games as well for gameplay, but um, it's actually a, a topic I'm going to come back around to, which is... Uh, Halo's health uh, since it first launched because uh, you played the campaign or just the multiplayer campaign primarily? Both. 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 Um, And so then moving on to the next sort of one of these intro combo questions. What's the best book you read in the past year? Ooh, that's a a better one. Um, So, I I mean, you see here, Press Reset by Jason Schreier. That one's pretty good. Um, um, And I would be remiss to not plug my buddies here, like David Niebuhr, who did the platforms and cultural production. So that one is pretty robust in terms of looking at uh, uh, the games industry and how the people that work there and the power relationships that exist between organizations, how that influences and impacts the industry. But I think my favorite one, where is it? Yeah, it's the, the platform delusion. So there's um so that one is by Jonathan Nee. He's um, a professor at uh, Columbia Business School, and he ends up uh, also running the media practice at the, this bank called Evercore. Whatever. I met him one time. He's um, a snarky New Yorker, and he writes about how you know all this talk about platforms and platform economics. He's like, it's totally overblown. Those economics don't really exist. Network effects, yeah, kind of, but a lot of them are subsidized. So there is this like 
idea, this belief in economy and in investing that, you know, the platform is this, you know, holier than holy thing, when in fact we can ask some really critical questions uh, around that type of thinking. So I like that because he goes against the grain and, you know, having met the guy, like he's, he's exactly that type of person. So it's, that was my favorite for last year because it was a sort of a, you know, sort of to hear the other side. Like we spend so much time talking about this is what Sony should do, or will Amazon make it with its, you know, whatever multi-platform, multi-sided business model. And that's all very cool type of conversation. But what if some of that is just bullshit? You know, what if, yeah. you know, let's have that conversation. So I enjoyed that one. That's a good one. That, that really reminds me of a, like a Marshall McLuhan-esque medium as a message study from both angles because they'll always send sell you that the content is the everlasting important but the actual medium and platform center so i'm gonna check that one out um and so then obviously you've been doing a lot of reading now i'm gonna start shifting into some of the more gaming questions with uh what was the biggest thing that happened in gaming in your opinion the past year that did not receive the proper amount of media coverage so like there was a lot of big things that happened but what's the big thing that flew under the radar that's like for me yeah for me personally like i would say like the app the apple epic games lawsuit um consequences and the sort of verdict on that it felt like there was a lot of anticipation built up as to what could happen and then i don't really remember anyone really covering in detail that epic games lost and they just just sort of walked right past that right it felt like a fun and so any versions of those uh come to mind I th- I thought the uh, so I'd have to admit that I'm a, a little bit further down the rabbit hole with the uh, Epic and Apple thing because you know I I come from the data world and so many of the uh, people I talk to like they they ate it up like all those slides of P and L statements that came out of that lawsuit it was amazing so it it sort of uh, I say remove the veil for so many you know, questions and like what is what does Fortnite make exactly kind of uh, stuff so I think a lot of people ran with it I thought that was that could have received more mainstream attention but certainly that was uh, in the people I talked to that was a, a big thing on their mind so I, I'd agree with you on that 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 could have been a lot Nick it could have been mirrored out much more broadly than it was um, I guess the answer to that question from my end is um you know, I almost feel like it's, uh, I mean, one of the things, and it has very little to do with business, except for the fact that the games industry is now so large that it's no longer able to have no opinion about stuff, right? And so I feel that um, at the beginning of the pandemic, right, the you know, early stages of the Hong Kong protests, you had uh, Activision Blizzard make this horrible mistake of uh, shutting down a live stream of someone supporting the protests in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And, and and taking all of its winnings away from uh, uh, this Hearthstone tournament mm-hmm. um, and really kind of coming to the realization that like unlike the music industry and unlike the film industry who you know each in their own way have this very pronounced agenda like you know what Hollywood is about you know yeah. what the music industry stands for and where their beliefs are that it's the voice of those people that can't speak for themselves kind of uh, you know they try to both commercialize it, but also be a facilitator of that that that, that conversation and the dialogue. The games industry is now this mainstream form of entertainment, you know, bigger than all of it, and they really should take a stance. And uh, they etch it in the buildings. They say uh, everyone counts or every voice matters, but but they don't live it. And I think that that's a, a big thing that kind of flies under the radar. And that 
now that it's as big as it is, it really has the responsibility and the obligation, I believe, to kind of stand for something and nobody's home. And I think that that's a real lack of leadership. I think that that's probably because no one wants to upset the delicate balance that is whatever the financial market and dealing with the Chinese government or any of these things in between. But really, they should have a much more focused, extensive and uh, explicit stance in some of these things. Well, that's actually a good a good place for us to start. Because one of the things I want to do is sort of go through some, some of the console questions, like one per. Um, and it's starting with, obviously, Xbox. But say, you know, Activision Blizzard had a lot of heat leading up. Obviously, they had the major lawsuit filed against them by California with the workplace harassment issues. All of that building up was supposed to be Bobby Kotick gets kicked out and they sort of refresh Activision Blizzard with the better work environment, new leadership, right? That's sort of what everyone is pushing for alongside the sort of unionization push. That's the responsibility that people are looking for. Then all of a sudden, Microsoft swoops in and buys them, right? Mm-hmm. It does, doesn't that sort of, because Microsoft was such a beloved, oh, Game Pass is so good for gamers, everything, the narrative, it swoops that out, right? No one's going to take responsibility there anymore, right? In into that degree. So, do you think now some of the consolidation and all these musical chairs might make it for more difficult for some of the the versions of responsibility or outspokenness, right? Yeah, I, I see what you mean. It's sort of like it gets all covered up in the in the you know in the moving of addresses and like. Yeah, he's going to get a golden parachute and leave and then Activision Blizzard will be brought into Microsoft and they'll say, well, it's Mm. better now, but the actual foundational aspects that are sort of broken in the culture of the company and some of the practices in gaming industry development, etc. aren't ever going to get touched upon because we're just getting the next person get bought up before. Bungie's getting heat, they get bought. You know, everyone who's getting heat gets bought. And then you're no, sort of like, I hear okay. you. And it's, I think it's a valid point. I think it's a valid point. Like, so is, are they? Just a curiosity of how that could be addressed, even. Right. Yeah. So, well, let me answer it in two parts. Right. So the the first part would be that I agree with you that from the outside it looks very much like, you know, the the whatever people that are either actively contributing to that type of work environment or are actively ignoring it and therefore sort of condoning it in a sense, they are getting bought out and sent off on some golden yacht. And that's wrong, like that shouldn't be the case. There should be some repercussions, there should be some. And, you know, while it's probably not more than a consolation prize, you know, Bobby Kodak, of course, has been running this company for decades and off he goes. Like, and then you have to ask yourself, like this acquisition would have happened without all that turmoil, probably, not or maybe not as quickly maybe not at this amount i don't know maybe he would have stayed for more i don't so it's so you know he's what's the difference between four and a million and five hundred million as a golden parachute if that's what he gets out of it i don't know but it's the um you know it's not the crescendo and sort of you know high end high high point at the end of his career that he probably would have wanted so that's not enough punishment if if you could speak of it in those terms but I can understand how that creates sort of a, a, a sense of like, oh, those people aren't being held fully accountable for contributing to this type of yeah. horrible practices, right? So, so I agree with that. I think that in the context of Microsoft, however, Microsoft is a much, much, much larger firm. And because of that, it has been scrutinized and put through the ringer many times over. And so the 
company culture at Microsoft is very, very different. And so the practices that existed at Activision, I don't think that they can carry over and exist in the context of Microsoft. Not at least as I know the company. Mm -hmm. I said that for, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with them at Superdata for years and they're really, really strict. Like it's one of those companies that as you become a vendor, a service vendor to, these, to a company like this, every single person that interacts with Microsoft employees has to like admit uh, or I say commit to all these um, uh, these things like you have to do a full-on test basically to show that you're not going to do any bribing that you are everything's above the sheets that there's no uh, you know preferential treatment in any way so they're very 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 aware of anything that could throw off their work culture or could be perceived down the line as like giving a contract of one company not another one mm-hmm. and and you have to kind of play along with that so i feel that the integration of activision blizzard into the microsoft empire is going to clean up a lot of that because it just cannot possibly live like once their hr department takes a broom to this thing there's going to be a whole bunch of changes because of it it's just you know because microsoft is that much bigger like you don't get to be that big without having your shit together but it's yeah 100 so the basic- so that's so that's one yeah, so it'll right. integrate it and then take out and brush out the bad pieces while integrating into the healthier environment. Well, you know, hopefully. Ideal. And, and, that's, yeah. and that's the second piece when, when you ask, like, how is that going to go? It's like, well, I know a lot of people that moved from Microsoft and Xbox to Activision in recent years. And, of course, they're coming back in. Uh, but the best example, I think, is uh, Mike Ibarra, right, who is uh, head of Blizzard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's a as I know him and the people around him describe me, he's a straight shooter. So, you know, these are the people that I believe are going to have significant impact into how that's going to go and how mm-hmm. that process kind of that transition and that cultural shift is going to take place. And, you know, if Activision and Microsoft say culturally speak different languages, um, you know, he would be one of the translators. Mm-hmm. So, I, so, so that's how I think it's going to go. That's the, the, how will it be a perfect process now? But you know, this is, these are corporations with tens of thousands of people. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, if you chop wood, you get splinters, that's inevitable, but overall, will it be an improvement of the circumstance that we've seen in Activision over the last year and a half? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So then, you know, sort of pivoting on that now, but sort of staying on to the acquisition, uh, what strategic purpose did Microsoft have to buy? I know that a lot, a little bit of the metaverse question has come in and the content. Do you think, or I guess a more specific question would be, was it an actual bulk work move against Sony and PlayStation to say, hey, we have to get this before you do? Or do you think it was against Google? Because I know Stadia just bowed out, but mm. if Google had bought them, Stadia is a better technology than xCloud, even though I love xCloud but it doesn't have the content library. Had they taken mm-hmm. Activision Blizzard, say, I didn't even you know if it, who was Xbox competing against, right? Because Xbox right. lost to Google once. People forget Microsoft is competing with Google, which is what Phil Spencer said a couple of months ago, and Amazon. Had Amazon mm-hmm. or Google bought it, well, then they'd automatically become legit players in the game. How come they didn't buy it? And do you think Microsoft was competing against them or Sony in buying it, or just concerned with themselves? That's, a, that's an excellent question. So the the easy one of the two is the reason Amazon and Google didn't buy an Activision or anything one-tenth the size is because they don't have the results that justify that kind of expense. Uh, Stadia is eyed, right? I mean, I like, I like the service. I think 
up until recently, I would say, was superior to xCloud. Lately, my xCloud experience is improved. So they, it which improved. I have no, I, you know, and just to be clear, like I have no stake in, in Xbox's success. Like, you know, if it sucks, I'll tell you that too. But for a while, it did suck compared to Stadia. Uh, Stadia was absolutely better. Um, but in my mind, they've caught up uh, in terms of technology, like the, just the, the latency and the, the experience I have here in Brooklyn as an individual is like, it's just better for me now than it was six months ago. Okay. So Stadia doesn't really have that advantage anymore. Um, and I think that they, you know, they, had a, they keep pushing like these library updates and it's like, this is such mediocre stuff. Like mm -hmm. I get it. Like there's a lot of creative people that work very hard, but this is not the logic that you would have with any kind of platform where you have some cool exclusive, some really interesting titles that are going to make you excited to want to sign up for this stuff. You see it in um, streaming video. And this is where I, after this closes, so I'm an advisor to a company called Antenna. They track subscriptions uh, for these kind of services like Disney Plus. But one of the drivers there is like, look, when Game of Thrones has a new season, everybody signs up for HBO. Mm -hmm. When there's a new Stranger Things, everybody gets renews their Netflix subscription. And then once that's done, they, they leave again. And so mm -hmm. I don't think that either Google or Amazon with Luna really saw the influx of new customers and subscribers that would justify really going all out on a big check. So that's so that's the, the easier one as to why they didn't buy Activision. And then with regards to like, is it, you know, Microsoft competing with Sony here. I think what they realized after three generations um, that really, you know, Sony's got them beat, you know, in terms of the strict conventional console space. Uh, you know, you could go back and forth a little bit about the titles. Of course, Sony's got a really cool library with unique IP, but Sony also has, you know, an extensive sales network, right? They sell TVs and radios and headphones all day long. So they have representatives all over the world in a way that just Microsoft doesn't because Microsoft is a software business. They don't have the same kind of sales force behind selling the console as Sony and they never will, right? And so for them to be competitive in that space, they have to sort of redefine the boundaries of what gaming means to them. And that's exactly what they did. And that's exactly what xCloud is all about. And that's exactly why having AAA IP available in your cloud service is going to not just uh, allow them to get out from under Sony in a sense, but it will also allow them to penetrate markets that they've been out of reach, uh, you know, uh, over the years. And they haven't been able to get there because they need to get their devices there. Like it's been very hard to get consoles into China for mm -hmm. years. And so, while you would think that that would be a great competitive market where you can kind of get in ahead of Sony's, like that never really worked. So they're redefining their strategy by sort of getting, by taking a much broader definition of gaming. And then all of a sudden you need just killer IP and a, and a solid, you know, hardworking service that actually gives you the experience you expect. So, so I think that's, that's the approach. And so, yeah, they're, they're not doing this to compete with Sony. They're doing this to, broaden the, the understanding of the games industry to the point where Sony is just one piece of that ecosystem, but not the only other competitor in the space. Mm. That makes sense. See, it does 100% because actually that brings in the secondary question, which is like you said, I've, I've sort of, I feel like subscription services were sort of the obvious go-to for quite a while now when it came to gaming, right? So it was just naturally moving towards there, especially as digitalization kicked in. And so Microsoft expanding the base 
of what is a gamer is basically the the Satoru Iwata Wii strategy, right? All right, we've ingrown console gamers too much like PlayStation. We don't have an advantage. So let's expand what the definition is and where you can play. And then you'll be able to depend on subscription services because consoles don't really make a lot of money. They make more money on the games and the the peripherals, which now Xbox offers a whole bunch of peripherals, right? Yes. Now, Sony is trying to compete with this, right? So they've been ahead, but now in this new marketplace, Xbox has laid the groundwork over years for a more scaled strategy to reach new people that have come into gaming. PlayStation, I heard, you know, I heard you saying in, in the podcast on monetizing media is relaunching their Game Pass service, right? Mm-hmm. Can they compete with Xbox on the same level? Because even if they offer the same service, they don't have the cloud capabilities or the cloud technology. So even if you're saying, hey, I can do it too, mm-hmm. Xbox is like, hey, you can play Halo on your phone, on your computer, literally anywhere, genuinely with the controller. PlayStation doesn't offer that. So if they say we do the same, is this gen- does that really close the gap or is PlayStation still, did that Activision Blizzard push on top of the Bethesda buy sort of really push Xbox in front for at least a generation? Right. It's a it's a good way to look at it. I think it's so 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 Sony can't follow Microsoft in infrastructure and cloud technology. They just can't. They just don't build that. They built consumer facing technology. They're consumer electronics firm, so they are naturally forced to, and they did they strike a deal with Microsoft in North America and with Tencent in Asia to uh, facilitate their backend because they don't do that. I mean, I'm sure they have some service somewhere, but never on the same level as Microsoft or Google. Why don't they just buy NVIDIA GeForce? Like, why don't they just partner with (laughs) NVIDIA GeForce? Like, I'm going to cut this back because you're, I've been doing cloud gaming forever. You were Mm -hmm. a you were an advisor to Parsec. I knew Mm -hmm. about Parsec since like 2015 when they first launched in the, Mm because, because of the ability to play it like that. Mm -hmm. How come they didn't just look at that? Like, I'm like, Befuddled. Tell me, oh, why don't they just look at GeForce and say, you have the tech, but you don't have the content. When you tried to go live with the library, everybody left you, but we like yes. you still, we'll do it with you. That's true. It's true. Like you, you think that it would be so much easier, right? Like, or so much more obvious. So I think the honest answer is that the corporations don't always do the obvious thing. Um, and I think that they've, you know, not necessarily made some mistakes, but you know, as they move forward, they have to think about the entire company as they do it, right? And so, so Sony does not have a huge ability to again look at it, the world that way. They don't have that luxury. They were also at the time, if you remember, uh, transitioning CEOs. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, now there's a whole new wind, and we're going to build things from the ground up, and we're going to tinker again, and we're going to you know turn the, the lab back on and mm-hmm. figure out how that's going to go. So they were going through a huge cultural shift in that sense anyways. And I think they really look at like 10 to 20-year timelines rather than can we spend a few hundred million dollars and fix this, plug this hole in the market, right? I think that they really think of it on an infrastructural issue. And as a consumer electronics company, I, you know, their, their best their biggest hits were always in coming up with a device that no one else had. Like the PlayStation 5, you still can't get it. I'm sure yeah. you have one, right? But I'm, I'm still looking around like a peasant trying to figure out like, come on, can I get one? And it's because it's so good that demand just far exceeds supply also because of sort of these uh, uh, economic trends and like shortage in supply and chipset shortages, whatever. But it comes down to 
that's their strength and they're going to stick to that, right? They're trying to basically figure out like, how can we build a new Walkman in this, like in the 21st century here? And they have no interest in therefore to really beef up their backend because it doesn't make sense for them. Like that's not what they're good at. So they, they won't pursue that, I think. That makes sense. And then so well, that actually makes sense. So if you're not going to pursue a strategy that might be common sense mm-hmm. on its face, but maybe not what is in your company DNA, like say consumer mm-hmm. products or stuff, that actually now brings me to Nintendo because Nintendo obviously is Nintendo, right? They just, they have no issue, no concern with anything going on um, Nintendo does by shit. industry like, standards. They, just, they don't care. <laughs> They're like, no, we're doing this. We're making a Mario movie. Like, Okay, real nice <laughs> Steam Deck you have there. Does it play Pokemon? No, go buy our game. And so, but one place they've very actively avoided since early failures is the mobile market. And mm. so I was going to ask you, why now as Nintendo Switch gets bigger and you know they have that partnership with Niantic, but Niantic hasn't recreated its success since Pokemon Go. The new Pikmin game doesn't make sense. You know, there's, there's a limited type of life that exists for Nintendo mobile games. Why are they so bad at that? And do you like PlayStation have a confidence that they're not going to pursue it because it's opposed to their sort of core competency? Uh, I mean, Nintendo is a toy company. So, so they look for interesting, unique, uh, can't live without kind of experiences that no one else is doing. So they're not, I mean, the GameCube, oh, what was it? The, the Nintendo 64 was basically two units of its predecessor. I think the GameCube was two. I forget. I forget the chronology here for a second. But so, so they've never emphasized technology as the main driver of their success. Whereas, of course, Sony only does that. Right? It's always about the chips. Apple only does that. Consumer electronic firms like Samsung. That's all they do all day. Better graphics, cooler buttons on the side of your device, whatever. Nintendo is like, look, we're, we're making craziness. We're making a Switch and you're not gonna understand quite what it is, but the controllers come off and that allows you to do multiplayer. And then you could also have this cradle. And so like, who thinks of that? Like Sony didn't, would never in a million years come up with something, like, I, you know, not even close. Never mind Microsoft, of course. Like Microsoft is not, a huge innovator when it comes to devices and hardware like that. So Nintendo is really very differently organized in that in order to afford itself to do things like that, they have to be totally, you know, they have to be relentless about ignoring what people tell them to do at their time. And and so that's how they operate. They, They are actively not caring about anything anyone has to say because that has never served them at all in the past. And so, they, so they're so they convinced of that. And I think they're they right. I think they're going to continue making these magical things. Um, the Switch just sold more units than the Wii. Yeah. It's just, well, no one saw that coming. Like they all thought that the Nintendo was dead when the Wii U cratered and, and performed, uh, performed very poorly. They sold what, like 13.4 million yeah. units and that was it. After the Wii, which had like 10 times that. And so then they thought the switch like we'll see and here we are so you know the easy way to phrase it is always like they don't count nintendo out you always think that they're sort of stacking or they're not doing it right 
but they're on a whole they're on their own different track here like they they are they then they are they the Disney? measured by the same success measurement huh? well that's they can't be measured by the same success measurements because they are working on a different sort of axis right so all three of the companies mm -hmm. that competed on this plane sort of shifted so it's like in xbox they're just like hey we're cloud and we'll get you as many games as you want wherever you want that's their selling mm -hmm. point games for like, everywhere anyway playstation's like if you're a gamer you know, mm -hmm. in the sense, come to us for that high-end experience. Oh, and our, our IP is so high-end that Hollywood wants to make high-end TV shows and movies about it. And like you said, mm -hmm. if people go to Stranger Things and then go get Netflix, would they watch Last of Us and then go buy a PlayStation? Arguably, right. think so, right? right? And so now you have them on the back end um, trying to do like a similar thing. Basically, the point would be at, at what version... Um, are these three sort of competing then moving forward like if they're trying to like you know so I mean, it's playstation it, yeah. it's not really a diagonal competition they're each in their own lane so can we just yes. look at them all as three things instead of saying the console wars it's like it's no longer the console wars it's no and i don't think it ever was um because they you know nintendo took a left turn and said you know microsoft and sony they can have each other and compete over like you know bits and bytes and graphics and try to you know get that adult market we're kind of we're trying to make fun things like mario kart and zelda here like and that's all we do all day long and i think that that was the right choice um sony you know because it, i mean it's in some ways it's incredibly predictable so sony of course buys game studios like guerrilla games and bungie because it needs cool IP. Why does it need cool IP? Because it sells the PlayStation, yes, but also giant televisions and $400 headphones. And so, you know, they also have, a, they're one of the biggest, one of the three largest music labels in the world. They also are incredible movie uh, uh, producing entity. So for them, content is a necessary complementary asset or a thing like it's, it's the popcorn to their movie theater kind of thing, right? It's like yeah. that's why they're in the game, and so they're going to continue to follow that same uh, strategy because it helps them sell the hardware. It helps them push devices into people's homes. It's why you pay four hundred bucks for headphones because you want to have that real musical experience, that audio experience. The PSVR is trying to be the same thing, I think, but it's sort of like a visual. So you see with Sony. Um, it's a little bit like uh, how Activision used to do it with its three different studios for Call of Duty, but they, they cycle between every year is a different division gets to sort of have the stage. And so the PlayStation VR was sort of like the visual people, like the visual mm -hmm. engineering. And then, you know, you have um, audio will take the, 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 the foreground and then the devices. Haptic feedback like controller people were there with the PlayStation. Exactly. Player. So everybody yeah. gets a turn, right? And so every engineering group gets like a year to shine. And so, and then they reset that in some way. I think that that's a much more predictable way to be. And then Microsoft is really a software company, right? So they look at everything. It's like, okay, how can we create an account? And their version sort of, you hear such an Adela talk about the metaverse. It's a, uh, basically you're going to use your gamer tag to like, of course, log into game pass, but also how you go and then get your whatever account through your college Excel version or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you use Microsoft Teams, God help you but you, you're going to have one consistent identity through all of those applications. That's their version of, of what the world looks like. And they're not selling headphones. Are you kidding? No, they're, they're trying to try to experience. Mobile. 
mm-hmm. which is like just give you all the different softwares you need in one single place and then gaming Correct. and uh professional so all right so now i got like two three more questions and then I'll, I'll let you run because i know you're you're busy and it's friday afternoon so i don't want to just like be like hey guess what your friday afternoon is talking I, to me i appreciate it <laughs> um nfts in gaming which is a, a oh, big one boy. why wait, why do gamers and the and why does the industry feel like that about them because for all intents and purposes, they are big proponents of exclusivity and skins and digital items and uh-huh. not having what's in the shop. To, why then is NFTs? Is it the people who sell NFTs the way they do on Twitter that make people not like NFTs versus the actual yeah. aspect of them? I mean, it, it's, it, you know, you have that objective. I, th- right? I think it's like a 2080 distribution. I think 20% is people in the games industry, both the consumers and creatives that have a particular culture around, you know, commercialization and profit and the conversation of money. And it's always been fascinating to me, like you're not supposed to talk about money in the games industry because everything is supposed to be fun. Like, um, especially indie developers, they love talking about like, oh, my game is going to be good enough on its own and it will sell and I don't do marketing and people in suits are scary, blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's, sort of a, a taboo to talk about the commercialization of content for a lot of the people out there that uh, make games and a lot of people that enjoy games, that play games. And I think that that is naive in some ways because, you know, you got to eat if you want to build something, right? And you got to have lights on if you want to play something. So things cost I mean, money. And Patreon's yeah. the same thing. You know, exactly. So there's different ways to uh, to to deal with the money question. I think 80% of it on the, on the other hand is that all these blockchain crypto bros running their mouth. Uh, you know, the easiest thing to say is that it's really about the financialization of everything that they really just get into this and pretend that there is some value here. Well, in fact, of course, it's some, it's a crude version of a Ponzi scheme where it only makes sense for the people in the system when they can successfully recruit new people to join and also buy an NFT because it it raises the value of whatever they're already holding. So so there's part of that, but they also cloak themselves in this idea of, oh, it's actually fun and it's games and we're doing this cool thing with community. And if the premise is that you're gonna make money in like play to earn, or if the premise is like I'm holding an NFT or a collection of NFTs because I want to sell them and that's my asset that appreciates over time. If you're not, are you really in it for the fun of it? Are you really collecting things that are aesthetically pleasing or is that really an experience or is it just, I'm trying to, you know, sell this to the next sucker. And I think that that is currently where a lot of that industry is at. Uh, I think that they are really just sort of money hungry and they haven't really thought through how to build a sustainable business over the long term. So, so for that reason, I think it's obvious like the, the knee-jerk reaction while the games industry and game consumers tend to be very anti-money, I think in this case has been correct. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not like you said, it's not well thought out and it, it's getting sort of pushed in, but it uh, actually brings me to my next question because it brings me into esports because phase mm-hmm. was going public and you know, a large amount or going public and a large amount of their valuation was tied to what their future earnings would be through the nfts and the metaverse mm. um you know that is again buzzwords and a lot of buzzwords are existing in the space do you think 
even at, in, in the form it is that I know you wrote about this, but you know, is there a justifiable version for that sort of valuation for FaZe or any other esports teams leagues? Or do you think that is like maybe NFT is not a Ponzi scheme, but a sort of hopeful valuation that they hope people will agree with? And that, oh, that will sort of set the standard. Yeah, that's a good question. So if I recall correctly, it's, uh, you know, they had like this uh, sort of tiered graph on how they're going to make money. And, you in know, five, they're going to years. Get, right. They're in five, six years, they're going to be worth 650 million in revenues or something. Yeah. Up from like 30 or 50 million today. Like, like okay, 30, that's 100% jump. Yeah. Huge, huge increase. But so 100 million or so of that would come from NFTs in the metaverse. Okay, you know, I think that is probably sort of buzzword bingo, where in order to get the attention of investors and kind of make the case, you have to kind of say the thing and you're either provoking some sense of FOMO or perhaps it's, uh, you know, you're trying to sound like you know what you're talking about and you have some vision and that's, and people go like, oh, this person has a vision, it's like, we should invest. You know they're selling something to people at some point uh, of course but you know we think that that's probably a, a very rudimentary version of but over time will become a more complex experience and i think that's where phase has some potential it's the redefinition of how we interact with content it's no longer just uh, you know playing the game it's watching the game it's buying uh, you know, a cool skin for your character. It's attending an event, going to, you know, some big stadium and hang out with your buddies, uh, you know, seeing some concert that's associated with like watching the show on Netflix, right? I thought, so, so the way that we can interact with media franchises today, particularly the ones that have uh, a strong uh, basis in the games industry, I think, that is what's different now like you can't do that with mickey mouse like you can go watch mickey mouse in the movies and in cartoons and you can go to disneyland but so that's a more conventional model like you can't play mickey mouse there's no mickey mouse video games not really are they more or less just music labels then most esports that's the the question right right so so the i think music offers the music industry offers some really good parallels that will help us understand sort of the direction of the games industry one would be um, that we've never really had celebrity in the in the games business. You know, you had, of course, the fact that you uh, had these narratives around some individual, like a Will Wright who would make The Sims. It's like, oh, well, he's such a brilliant designer. Yeah, that's a marketing ploy. They just make it seem like he did all the work alone and that it was his one vision. So, of course, there's other people involved. But fine, that sells better. It makes it easier to market it. But celebrity culture, like red carpet events, didn't exist in the games industry up until a few years ago. And esports was really the first to do it, right? Where you have the game, the video of the esports awards, and it's like a black mm-hmm. tux event in Vegas, and everybody looks like they're used to be in the mafia or something. You know, it's like this really culturally different direction that the games industry went into. And I think that that's probably an inter- interim stage. I think over time it will kind of ease up and it will probably become more like the VMAs or like the, you know, a little cooler, a little bit more casual, mm-hmm. a little like edgier, you know, more people with whatever facial piercings or whatever, because celebrity culture that didn't exist. Like the old guard of game developers and game designers are just huge programming nerds with cargo yeah. pants and, you know, bad hair. And they have no sense of celebrity because it didn't exist in that in that 
in the industry at the time. That's changing and then it will follow more along the lines of music than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And because and then it's funny the parallel between music and film because then the creative directors of the studios are then more akin to Hollywood directors and then but all of these mm -hmm. esports orgs and lifestyle brands are just music labels who manage talent, et cetera. But then uh, just just the last part, um, because you mentioned the sort of like the the naturalizing of of mm -hmm. the gaming culture in the future versus right now they're sort of mimicking stuff it's all sort of new so it's like hey it's black tie and it's like we don't really work like that why are we doing that esports leagues in particular or another one like call of duty league etc that mimicked or used the models from traditional sports leagues do mm -hmm. you see them sort of succeeding moving forward in those models or do you think they too will have to adapt i think counter-strike is the best model of what professional esports should mm -hmm. be in terms of how it opens up and teams and tournaments, et cetera. Um, do you think yeah. other places have to, to manage that? Or do you think that they'll still be that sort of um, traditional format that exists uh, that's analogous to what's adopted? Right. It's so, so all sports change once they become spectator sports, right? So the football as it existed before it became like the NFL, it's a very different sport and 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 there's like volumes written about how fans of the original version of like sort of leather helmet football they were outraged once it became popular because all of a sudden like you know salaries increase and the culture around it changes and they said well it's all about the marbles now and not about the game right it's all about the winnings and the money and the and the whatever the flashy lights you know, the same, of course, you can expect to happen with the games industry. And so they tried its league system, it's Overwatch, which I don't think was very successful um, because it basically just sells the same thing to the same people all over again. You just sell it to like other sports people that are already in the business and they're going to only bring mostly the same ideas to how to evolve this. So it's nothing new. Um, what I would look for is, um, you know, games that are designed from the ground up to facilitate both playing and watching right and so it seems sort of obvious but um, basketball was purposely designed to facilitate you know uh, these schools where people didn't have a lot of space to do high intensity activity indoors because it was cold outside right so so basketball had to meet certain demands as a sport to facilitate its players and so then over time it becomes a spectator sport and it changes a little bit of course but you know, you can imagine a video game being developed purposefully to be a, a, a spectator game. But isn't um, that a coincidental marriage of form and function? So like mm -hmm. basketball well, design, yes. But it wasn't the right, design so of basketball to become, like why is basketball bigger now than it was 10 years ago? I think it's because clips, five second clips of a dunk is better baseball 10 years ago in the slow day era. Well, okay, that's mm -hmm. a lot bigger than now because it doesn't translate. Do you think like right. that a game can design for that ahead of time for both? Or do you think it'll just yeah. find an overlap? Absolutely. So I think, you know, part of what the appeal is of current games like a CSGO or even League of Legends or Dota in particular, because like, is like complexity is part of the appeal. It sort of isn't, it presents an entry barrier to casual spectators. Like you have no idea what's going on, you're not gonna stick around because you don't really belong here, right? And I think that that's purposeful because it's, uh, it still kind of keeps the, the user base kind of focused and concentrated and committed. Uh, basketball or 
you know, is as an immigrant in the U.S. Like basketball to me is infinitely easier to understand than football. I watched uh, yet again. I tried last last weekend to watch the Super Bowl. It's just so many minute interruptions. It's just it's unwatchable for me. Yeah. Also incomprehensible. I mean, I understand the rules, right? I've, I've done the homework, but it's just not the same spectator experience. So games can fall the same way, um, but you have to kind of wonder, like, to what extent is it trying to be mainstream and really mm-hmm. include anyone and everyone in the same way that the World Cup soccer for soccer is something that you see everywhere and everybody gets that? Or are they trying to kind of keep it a little bit exclusive and kind of focus the audience and really just pick up the top fans and the biggest spenders in that ecosystem? Mm. And I don't think we're there yet where you could see a basketball or soccer equivalent in gaming because it's not in their interest of design. It's not in the interest of the, the publishers to do it that way. Well, you you do in Wordle. You know, you get the simplicity yes, to adoption of things get big. Sign me right I, it, up. <laughs> it, the popularity. It's like what what what's similar about basketball and soccer? You need one ball. The the requirement the baseline requirements are zero. I need uh, two two. It, you can make it up with a singular ball. I think, as you said, with football, the equipment, the rules, the jargon, any game I Rocket League will probably have a forever lifespan because it's just. Medical. Each time will be different, sort of like a infinite loop of something new each time. Um, but like you said, you know that's a business strategy versus. Um, well, then, then, then the business needs they they start to inform the the, the creative agenda, yeah. right? It's um you know StarCraft Two, great game, brilliant game, uh, you know six hundred actions per minute to compete. That's that's nuts, right? And so clearly. The design could, something like that would benefit from better design, right? That's an early stage and it needs to evolve. And so 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, CSGO, yeah, that was like StarCraft II before that. It's just iterations and they will tweak it over time to better suit gameplay, accessibility and spectatorship. Um, well, that's, that's, that's about all the questions I had, um, to bug you with for the day. Um. Thank you again, as always, for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Uh, I enjoy the conversations. Of course. I look forward to hopefully having you back again in the future. Um, give, me, give me a call. We'll talk. And remember, everybody, Super Juice playlist. That's on Substack. One up the book on Twitter as Super Juice and all the things above. Appreciate Bye. it, man. Thank you so much.